0: Hey y'all, my name is Cliff Watson, and welcome to the final episode of season two of Emerging, the official podcast of the Trout Unlimited Costa Five Rivers program, brought to you by Sims Fishing Products. Larry Dahlberg is one of the biggest names in the angling community. He's the man who invented flashaboo, Mr. Wiggly, the Dahlberg diver, and much more. For nearly 20 years, Larry was the host of the TV show, The Hunt for Big Fish. As a kid, I was obsessed with this show and my brother and I spent countless hours glued to the TV learning from Larry. I can confidently say that Larry helped to make me the angler I am today, and it is an honor to talk to him. We discussed Larry's new film with Costa, The Ties That Bind, his life story, how he approaches the sport of fishing, and much more. We hope you enjoyed this season of Emerging. Thank you again to Trout Unlimited, Costa Sunglasses, and Sims Fishing Products for making this possible. Most importantly... Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day. Hey there, Larry. Welcome to the Emerging Podcast. I, uh, I can't express to you how grateful I am to have you with us today. As I mentioned in the introduction, I have uh, absolutely loved your show since I was a kid, and the new film with Costa, The Ties That Pined, was just as captivating. I'm super excited to talk to you about the film, you know, your love of fishing, how you design new lures, all of that. Um, so I'll have you go ahead, introduce yourself, tell us where you're at right now, where you grew up, all that good stuff, and uh, yeah, what you like to fish for. So go ahead and take it from here, Larry.
1: Uh, well, I live in uh, Taylors Falls, Minnesota. Uh, Right on the border with Wisconsin, which is where I was born. Okay. And uh, other than that, I'm just uh, sitting here talking to you.
0: (laughs) I grew up in Wisconsin in the uh, southeast part, just outside of Milwaukee. So uh, what'd you grow up fishing for?
1: Well, the first fish uh, I ever caught was a crappie uh, through the ice. Nice. And then uh, that spring we graduated to uh, panfish. Uh, which was my first uh, fly rod experience, actually. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> then it was, I guess, uh, walleyes. Okay. Then muskies.
0: Yeah, musky. Good old musky. That's a Wisconsin, Minnesota favorite right there.
1: Yeah. Well, I skipped pike. Um, ah. I had a period between, uh, uh, I would guess, uh, in my early years where my dad wouldn't let me go along musky fishing. <laughs> so i had to develop my mechanical skills to a certain degree before i was allowed to come along and i did that uh, in a little lake called memory lake it's a okay. little uh, reservoir in the town where i was born and uh, i could get on my bike and just go down the hill yep and there was memory lake i drive over it uh when i go to my cabin to go fishing and i look at it and i think memory lake wow mm-hmm. I remember the, uh, bringing home the first 30-inch-plus pike. I was uh six years old, and I brought it home. My dad took out his tape measure, and he said, Man, that would be illegal <laughs> a
0: legal
1: musky. I remember catching it. I remember when it bit. I remember every detail of it. What did it eat? It ate a daredevil, a silver daredevil, 54-pound ah, okay. test line. Okay. I was using the Fluger skill cast. Standing wow. Standing to a point. <laughs>
0: That's great. I bet, I bet you can see it to this day. You know, that's that's yeah, a really cool yeah, memory. Yeah. I cast to it. That's awesome. It's a great there memory.
1: There were a lot of stumps out there. And uh, that's why my dad gave me the super heavy, those 54 pound line. So you get hung up, you just point at it mm-hmm. and hang on to the crank and walk backwards.
0: Yep. Yep. And I on. thought
1: I was hung up in this big pike bit. <laughs> so I pointed at it, started walking backwards. I drug that thing up on shore and took it Oh, my top gosh. Of it. I loaded it in my bicep. I had a net. I had a tackle box, and I had a, a uh, <laughs> my rod. And I had too much stuff to carry in my bike, so I was walking my bike up the hill. And uh, Fred Miller, and my neighbor, came along with it. He's a janitor in the mm-hmm. school. He's a crusty old
0: German.
1: <laughs> oh, he picked me up, and it was only about a block back to the house. And then yep. he went down there with me.
0: That's great. That's a good story.
1: Yeah. He had a, he had a yellow river runt. And uh, we went up above, above the path where I hadn't been. It was real tall grass and hard to get through. I just looked at it. And we went up above where it narrowed down at the mm-hmm. top of the reservoir above the bridge. We caught a couple of the nice pike up there. And I'd yeah. never seen a river runt before.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do
1: do remember it.
0: (laughs) That's good. Yeah, I've got some early fishing memories I hope that I can remember for a long time. One of them is with the pike, too. I mean, I was a young kid, and uh, my dad had left for work, but dropped me off at the lake on his way to work, and I caught a fish that I didn't know how to handle. You know, it was a pike that was probably 28, 30, and I was so confused. I was like, what do I do with this dang thing? It's giant, you know, and I was probably seven or eight years old, not sure how to to handle the situation. I was like, Dad, you got to come back here. I grabbed somebody's cell phone and gave him a call, and he actually left work and came back and took a picture and stuff like that. It was pretty funny. Um, So you didn't get cut. Nope. Didn't lose the fish. Yeah. It was a, uh, it was a miracle at that age. Not your hands. Oh, Oh no. That was the one thing I did know is that those things had teeth. I think that's why I was so confused. I was like, I, you know, it's not a bass. I can't just lip it. Right. And I can't just grab it in the mouth. I'll lose a finger. <laughs> um, so Larry, you're very well known for being a, a creator, right? An inventor of the sport. Um, just so people listening can understand, you know, you invented flashaboo, which, uh, to a lot of fly tires is their favorite material. One of mine, uh, especially if you tie big streamers and stuff like that. The Dahlberg Diver is a really cool fly. Uh, I fished it a couple times for bass and pike. I really like it. And then probably my favorite swim bait I've ever seen and the coolest action is is Mr. Wiggly. Um, so do you remember the first fly or lure that you tied and, and made yourself?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> what was that?
1: A black mat.
0: Ah, okay. So it was.
1: My dad had a kind of a workshop in the basement where we like, kind of where I grew up. If you could make it yourself, you did. Sure. Other than buy it, it was just that that way. And uh, black chenille on a size 10 hook with a little bit of a uh, red marabou sticking out the butt. And I had a, it was about a, I don't know, maybe a four foot uh, fly rod that was actually an ice fishing stick that was too long to be mm-hmm. comfortable in an ice shack. And my dad put a little reel on it and I would stand in the water up to my waist and flop this thing back and forth and uh, catch sunfish on it. Oh.
0: That's great. So you caught a lot of fish on that fly, I guess.
1: Well, if sunfish, like, yeah, we catch them in the spring and bring them home and eat
0: them. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, that's one of my favorite fish to target on the fly is a little brim, you know, bluegill and stuff like that, because they're pretty aggressive in the springtime and they taste great. That's for sure. <laughs>
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. What do you think, you know, excited you or, or made you want to design that first fly? What what got you to do that?
1: Well, I didn't design it. My dad just okay. said, here's how you do this. Right. And <laughs> That's it. You just did it. Uh, and then, as a kid, I was possessed. Uh, my dad really liked to fish, uh, mm-hmm. and this is, you know, I guess would be. I was born in 1949, and he used to he'd bring home these muskies, and they, they killed all of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I can remember looking at them laying in the grass, you know, with, spraying it with the hose, and looking at their eyeballs and their teeth, and man, it made my heart beat faster. And uh, I wanted to go with so bad, and uh, he rigged up a Pfluger skill cast on an old, uh, you know, bat steel rod, and he had a lure that probably weighed about an ounce or something with no hooks on it. It was old rubber sucker imitation. It was this, you know, piece of junk.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: He drew a line in the backyard that was just maybe 30 feet short of the swing set, and then maybe 10 feet. Past the swing set he put a box Mm -hmm. and i had to stand if i stood here and i had to cast right directly over my head no sidearm stuff at all Mm -hmm. over my head directly under the swing set into the box eight out of ten times and if i could do that he said you can come along (laughs) and by the time i was six i could do it and my because i'd be down you know at the river at memory lake uh, fishing all the time practicing so i wasn't getting backlash when i did i'd you know, he, I'd come home and he'd pick them out at noon if I get it back. Unless I couldn't have. <laughs> but any, anyway, uh, then my mom said, "Hey, you promised." You, yes. Oh, you know, he can do it. You got it, <laughs> and uh, he did, and that's that's when I learned how to row. Wow. <laughs> the only time I got to fish is when we anchored.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: two or three boat cushions set up. I couldn't even see. You know, you just pull on the right oar, you know, <laughs> pull on both oars, you know, pushed on the left or <laughs> and pull on the right. Ear, okay. And uh, that's how I got started.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, you were his motor for a little while, it sounds like. I,
1: yeah, it was, I was his electric rolling motor.
0: Yep, that's great. Hey, that's what kids are for. You know, kids are for mowing the grass, rowing the boat, you know, shoveling snow, all that stuff.
1: Interesting you'd say that because it'd be like, okay, if you get all your work done and you get this done and that done and you eat all your vegetables, then mm-hmm. maybe you can come along. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, today it's like, oh, Junior, we've got to take him because, you know, poor Junior. Yeah, right. Come on, Jim, get off your butt.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. No, fishing was a was a you know, like a little treat for me growing up. My parents were like, Yeah, we'll drive you down there, you know, if you take care of the lawn or you know, get your homework done, whatever it is. That's really important because it makes you want to work for it. So
1: Pavlov's kid.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So when did uh the hunt for big fish get started?
1: I'd <sighs> be the early early nineties. Okay. I've worked with uh uh, the in fishermen for uh, several years and uh, produced their TV shows and so on. And then there was a point where I was interested in uh, a lot of other different environments and species and so on. And uh, they wanted to uh, really focus heavily on the professional walleye tour and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I wasn't too interested in uh, in that side of it. So I decided, well, I'm going to go see what what's what in the in the whole world and. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, a whole bunch of time and countries and species flashed by, and yeah. now I'm sitting here talking to you.
0: Yeah. When did uh, when did that stop airing, or when did you stop recording that? I
1: can't remember what year it was. It was about three, four years ago, I guess. Okay. Four
0: years ago. Gotcha. Yeah, I see you've got that world map on your wall. Have you been to a lot of different places, thanks to that show and the sport of fishing?
1: The last count, I think I went through it, I, I have been... To I haven't fished in every one of them, but I've been in, I think, 89
0: countries. Wow. That's incredible. That's a, that's a dream right there for a lot of people. That's awesome.
1: It's kind of funny. I was born in uh, Grantsburg, Wisconsin. It was population 931. Uh, it was the biggest town in the county. The ne- next closest town was probably about 15 miles away. And I never had any plans of leaving the county. I had mm-hmm. everything I needed right there.
0: Right. So it's kind of <laughs> funny. <laughs> How did it work out for you? Did you enjoy, you know, getting out and traveling around?
1: Oh, I, yeah, Good. yeah. Good. Do
0: you have a favorite yeah, place? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you have a favorite place you went to fish, or you know that you went frequently and a recurring trip?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I really, really enjoyed uh, fishing with my friend uh, Cesar yeah. uh, Calor, yep. uh, and uh, we kind of explored Suriname. He was born there. Mm-hmm. and they fished all these little creeks and so on and he was really good at it and uh i met him in brazil fishing peacocks and then we went back to his home country and fished some of the bigger water that mm-hmm. they've been kind of uh, intimidated by a little bit We went after these uh uh cats and then he showed me where he uh, fished wolfies and
0: gotcha yeah and i mean,
1: rem- I, really, I enjoyed that really really a lot i enjoyed africa really a lot too okay the
0: really, uh yeah, I remember. Uh, I really liked Caesar when I was watching the show as a kid. He was a he was a fun guy. He was a great jokester. Do you still talk to him at all?
1: He was killed in an airplane crash.
0: Oh about wow! About
1: four or five years ago. Oh, what a shame!
0: What a shame! I'm really sorry to hear that, Larry. Yeah. Um, within Africa, what were you what were you fishing for that was so exciting?
1: Uh, Tiger fish are really fun. When I went over there, they didn't know how to catch them. They thought you needed the a chunk of the heart of an ox mm. is what they thought was the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't know how to catch them on lures, and uh, it was really fun to to figure that that part of it out. And flies, either the flies they were using were just absurd, as this, you know, four or five or three or some gang hooks mm-hmm. and all that stuff, and. It was just a joke. I think the biggest one ever caught on a fly at that time was maybe ten pounds or nine pounds or something. Wow. It was just, it was pretty funny. The Nile perch were the ones that were the most interesting to me. baby. Um, we fished them in the, both Lake uh, uh, Victoria and also uh, in the reservoir above the Aswan Dam, uh, Lake Nasser. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was so interesting. Uh, the different the that. To me the different environments are the most uh that's what fishing is all about is understanding the environments. And it's fun to ring the doorbell, you know, get it figured out. So you ring that doorbell, they come out and say, Hey man, how you doing? Yeah.
0: How- I like that part. Absolutely, no, it's really cool to go to a different place and and learn about how it all works, right? How do the fish think here? When do they eat? What do they want to eat? Why do they eat that? Uh, it's a great way to think about think about fishing. I think you did a good job of that with the show as well, and and getting people to realize that you no, know, fishing is not a luck. You know, it's you can make it a really skill based sport and uh, be really successful with it. That's uh, definitely a good thing to learn if you're an angler. I think.
1: Yeah, it's all about understanding, frame of reference. Most people have too much voodoo. Right. I, I've got a really simple system that I've been able to apply to every place that I have ever been, mm-hmm. uh, and it's worked. Uh, the only time that um, it becomes cumbersome <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: or is when yeah, you run out of time, uh, and the environments uh, that are most difficult uh, are the... Uh, saltwater environments where you're fishing uh, pelagic fish that uh, are dictated by uh, factors that are so large, you know, uh, El Niños and La Niñas and these uh, upwellings that come uh, and go in the ocean. Uh, It's sometimes really hard to intercept a run of tunas or marlin or, you know, like that. But if you have a freshwater environment where (laughs) they're here, Mm -hmm. And go swim across this ocean. they're here. Uh, if you have time and you break it down, uh, they're they're catchable.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that was something that was you talked about in the ties that bind film with Blaine, um, because you both have that similar thought process, I think, of removing the voodoo from the whole equation, right. And really involving the, you know, the thought about where's this fish going to be? Why is it here? You know, what, what's happening with the clouds right now? What's the weather doing? Um, How did you first meet Blaine and, and get connected to him?
1: I really don't, I was trying to think about that when I, uh, when we were talking about, you know, you sent me some notes.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I can't remember. It might've been, I don't know at a fly show or someplace uh, like that. Mm -hmm.
0: Did you guys, you know, hit it off because of your, you know, sort of inventor mentality?
1: Um, well, a lot more reasons than that. We, we both have an interest in muskies Mm -hmm. and we both were guides for a long time. Blaine's still guides. Mm -hmm. Um, and we both, uh, are real interested in, uh, rivers, um, and, uh, designing stuff.
2: Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. We had, we had really, really, really a lot in common. And I think like you, Blaine had been watching the hunt for big fish in mm-hmm. his pajamas. You know? <laughs> he's probably, he's a little older, probably what, one generation older than you.
0: Yeah. Something like that. Yep. Yep.
1: Yeah. And uh, so we we hit it off, and we just stayed in communication. Sure. Uh, And then we we, we fished together. We went through a near-death experience uh, in a car crash. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, we were headed uh, fishing, actually. Mm -hmm. We were uh, creeping along, pulling a boat uh, with uh, some friends behind us. And we came over a little hill, and there was some lady that was late for something coming about. 60 miles an hour and we had a hat on and um we were really lucky to live through it
0: yeah well i'm glad you're still here you and blaine
1: and we did it we were doing a that was one of the last years last couple two three years i did the hunt for big fish i think mm-hmm. the episode was called crashing into muskies <laughs>
2: Ooh, <laughs>
1: We're yeah. both, more afterwards we could i couldn't even lift a fly rod
0: oh yeah i bet yeah it's interesting how a car crash will take that out of you you know you don't realize how much you get banged around while it's going on you know i mean you get kind of thrown around in there Seatbelt rubs all that stuff
1: <laughs> i didn't even know what happened i looked up and i thought it we were running uh, i thought it was a cow mm. in. and then the, all the the uh airbags and everything went off and we were in a toyota land cruiser Mm-hmm. The people behind us uh, saw the whole thing happen. Our back wheels come off the ground four feet.
0: Oh my god!
1: Yeah, it was lucky. And yeah, end up in the room and you
0: know semi concussions and all that kind of stuff. Right, no fun. We're just lucky to yeah. live through it. Exactly, exactly. What do you think um, Blaine has that you know some other anglers maybe don't have or or should work on? Because he's he's super successful you know, as a guide, as a lure designer, as a fly designer, all those things, what, uh, you know, what do you think happens in his brain that that other people sort of need to incorporate?
1: You have to be a really good observer. Mm. Uh, You, you, you watch. Um, okay. What it takes is time on the water. First of all, it doesn't matter what, if you don't have time on the water, it's really difficult to uh, create the frame of reference necessary to understand what exactly is going on. And a, a river can be more complex because you have uh, uh, rising and falling water levels and so so many different things. Uh, and temperatures too in his systems where he lives, it's a lot different than where we are. Right. As you look at fish globally, uh, you've got this crazy fascinating uh, temperature thing that goes on seasonally. The way water works, whether it stacks up in a bowl and creates layers, or how uh, a main stem of a river can uh, have a situation Mm -hmm. where there'll be tribs where every single creature is at those tribs at a certain time of the year because the main stem, like in Blaine's case, gets really super warm and then these cold water tribs. Uh, And so on and so on, as you get closer to the equator, things are more, uh, are completely Mm -hmm. uh, dictated by water levels, not by water temperatures and things, the entire environmental, uh, uh, just the way it works is completely, completely uh, different. I find that uh, uh, really interesting, but getting back, uh, it's observing. You know where there is. It's like, is there a fish here or not? Mm-hmm. And if there isn't, then you've got to figure out a process to figure out if there is one there or not. All right. Well, there's two situations. Either I can see them or I can't see them. Mm-hmm. If I can see them, then it becomes purely um, uh, a, uh, a tactical and mechanical thing where I've got some tactic that I have to be able to execute it mechanically to make it work. It might be some dead drifted object into a cube of space that's eight inches square, dead drifted, t- twitched for a millisecond and then dead drifted and the fish went, and does, didn't even know he ate it. God tapped him on the shoulders, said take a deep breath or you're gonna starve to death. This is a free meal. And then you've got other uh, situations where you always have to think about attracting triggering if that's what the deal is. And it might take something, uh, that's moving at a high rate of speed. That's uh, eight inches long.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and you watch this creature, uh, how does he behave when this happens and this happens and this happens. Uh, and then you begin to understand, um, Hmm, this didn't work mm-hmm. hmm, that did. And then you begin to eliminate the, the voodoo, Right, And then you also realize, hmm, if I'd have done this after time goes by, you realize that because I did this in this first, I can't get a bite on anything because I'm busted. He knows I'm after him. And you can't catch a fish that knows you're after it. So in answer to your question, time on the water with mm-hmm. your eyes open.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, time on the water is huge. And I was trying to teach my club members that this weekend, we took a trip to the green river in Utah, really cool fishery. Um, but we struggled, you know, we struggled to catch fish and we weren't, you know, we haven't been there before and it really takes some time, you know, of getting there. If you're a guide, you can be there every day, right. And you see things that nobody else sees and you can follow those patterns. Uh, and it makes it a lot easier. So getting out there and really, you know, figuring out your waterway and learning about it, like you said, is, is really important. Did you, you know, realize that at a young age at, at memory Lake that you had to be, you know, just by being out there, you were learning things and seeing trends and different changes on slight weather patterns and water temperatures and all those things.
1: I wasn't in a water temps when I was six. Right. <laughs> sure. But I, I started guiding full time. I mean, like a lot uh, by the time I was 11 and 12 and I was spending 1,200, 1,500, sometimes 1,700 hours on the water in the summer. And I started keeping track of temperature very, very close. Oh, it'd be in the sixties. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, but I didn't know as much about uh, layering and and all that, but the uh, it's, we tend to look at, uh, you know, again, frame of reference. Mm-hmm. As humans, it's our eyeballs and so on and so on. A fish, a fish isn't a isn't wired like we are. You know, they don't know what time it is. Right. Um, they the temperatures really really key. Like right right now, it's a it's spring here, and I know. I just checked. I, I checked. There's a, a map of the United States, USGS water levels. Mm-hmm. You know that is? Yeah oh, yeah.
0: Right. Yep yep. <laughs>
1: And I can look at real-time water temps right now, and I can see top peaks, valleys, peaks, valleys, peaks, valleys, and many of the tribs I can even see. And I can tell you who's spawning, when, where, what's you know, as these movements, you mm-hmm. can keep uh, pretty close track. And then as the as the season progresses, those things that attract them now might be the opposite of the things that, that will cause them. Uh, and in our waterways, for example, uh, smallmouth. Mm-hmm. I was keeping track uh, of where the concentrations were. Uh, I got hired as a as a smallmouth guide because I, my dad used to dump me in the in the uh, in the river as nine nine years old and <laughs> leave pick me up three days later. I had uh, a push pull I had oars, uh, I had a uh, boat cushions and uh, matches and stuff. But I didn't bring any food, and I just uh, ate these uh, brookies. And I would fish with everything with, uh, I had a, always had a fly rod. I always had a live bait rig and I always had a, a spinning rod and I was at a bait casting rod and I would just fish for whatever, you know, i would climb trees and throw crayfish in and mm-hmm. see what came out underneath the, the banks. And so did a little bit of fishing, uh, for everything at a, at a very, uh, very early age.
0: That's great. I wonder how many kids these days are able to have that sort of experience. You know, getting dropped off in a boat.
1: If you let let your kid go like that, you'd get Mm -hmm. arrested.
0: Right? They'd be like, "That guy's crazy. What's he doing?" (laughs) But But I
1: I was I was highly capable because why? My dad made me learn first. Right. Uh, He taught rifle uh, in the army, uh, how to shoot. (laughs) Yep. So he was a real regimented guy when it came to the mechanical skills and. uh, it takes uh, to do things. And because we, the boat would be loaded on the car all the time. He got home from work at four 30, mm-hmm. boom, we'd fish every single night. And so had a lot of it. And then all day Saturdays and Sundays, and we had a lot of, it. so I was, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't trained.
0: Right. No. Yeah. You, you knew what you were and doing. Some,
1: yeah. Some nine year olds can run a, a lawnmower or without, Worrying about cutting their toes off, others not.
0: Right, that depends on the nine-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did um, did your dad, you know, take you fishing? You think because he wanted you out there with him, or um,
1: he wanted to go? Right, and uh, it was easier if he took the kid along because then you know, mom, hey, that's great. Yeah,
0: exactly. Get and the kid along. So, no,
1: and I think he, as I look back, uh, for sure. Right, you know, and I think. You know, having somebody that uh, pulled their own share of the weight and made him both proud. Mm-hmm. And uh,
0: yes, yeah, so uh, you hinted at this slightly when you were talking about how you were fishing as a kid and you'd have, you know, the spinning rod, baitcaster, and the fly rod all on all in the boat. And you know, I've heard you talk about this, you know, idea before, and not less of an idea, but you know, the something you believe in that, you know, there's really no difference between gear fishing and fly fishing, and you avoid making that distinction, right, and sort of separating the two. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's something that's sort of wrong with fly fishing is that fly anglers seem to think that they're on this pedestal that puts them above other fishermen. And I was just wondering if you could comment on, you know, the whole, like, gear fishing versus fly fishing and why you believe there's really no difference between the two.
1: Hmm. Well... Well, the world of angling is like a sphere with a billion keyholes in it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know people get their eye stuck on one keyhole and they look inside. And, you, know, you know, I'm looking at my desk and mm-hmm. say it's I can look at the ceiling, no, 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 it's it's white, and we could argue about it all day long. Right. We got a two-dimensional view. Um, you start looking through as many keyholes as your lifetime allows you. And uh, you start getting a three D view of what's in there. Fishing is no different. Um, all these different things that we have to catch fish, you can look at as tools, just like we have screwdrivers and wrenches and and things like that. When it comes to uh, conventional gear mm-hmm. fishing, you've got an object that has to weigh something. Mm-hmm we've got a a rod that's a lever that multiplies our uh, velocity depending on its length. And then we throw it out and the object that we're fishing with, pulls the line off the reel and ends up hopefully going where we want it. Mm -hmm. If we have something that doesn't weigh anything, we've got to add a bobber or we've got to add lead or something. Unless we decide to, pick up a fly rod where the weight of the line is what loads the rod and the rod casts the line and the line carries this weightless object where we want it to go. Mm -hmm. Um, it'll do something that nothing else will do. Um, from a standpoint of being able to accomplish that, um, it takes more practice than it would a spinning reel. It could be argued, uh, casting reel because we have anti-backlash devices and things built in. Uh, it could be argued that it takes more skill to cast a fly rod well than it does the other gear. And I would agree with that for most people. Um, it's fun to do when you get good at it. It's really fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not the same line. Um, but whether it makes a person better than some other, uh, That's pretty funny. (laughs) Um, I think that the better you get at all of them, the better you'll become at each. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it gets back down to do I know this fish is here or not? If I can see it, well, I can dick around with it and find out what it takes to catch it. Mm -hmm. If I can't see it, I've got to find some way to find out if it's really there or not. We've got modern electronics. Sometimes, like that's a fish, Mm -hmm. but otherwise uh, we've got to scrape the silver off the lottery card by presenting offerings in a organized manner and see if uh, something bites it. And that's fishing, right? Right. Yeah. And you, if, if you find a method, uh, there isn't any question that if you have the right live bait Mm -hmm. and you present it properly, in most cases it is singularly the most effective way to quickly find out if there is a fish there
2: mm-hmm.
1: and also maybe find out how many. and th- that's just the way it is and once that's been determined it can then be more quickly determined what else they will bite on because you know you're fishing where they are mm-hmm. Um, I was getting back to some of the superstitions. Back uh, when I was a kid, I noted, I could see the masses of smallmouth were moving uh, in the fall. And it was happening at exactly the same time every year, water temp-wise. It didn't matter, sunlight, that stuff didn't matter at all. But at 60, they were moving downhill. Uh, The DNR told me sun Smallmouth are born, live and die within a quarter or half mile range. And I went to the guy after the meeting and tried to be as polite as I could. And we arranged a thing where I could tag these rascals with, uh, they provided me with the tags. And so we monitored these things. I think we tagged about 1,200 of them the first year and found out, well, 5% of our tags were returned at the head wall of the dam that was much as 80 miles away from where I had tagged these rascals. Oh. And then they would come back up to where they were, you know, where they <laughs> spend their time in the summer, and they would actually spawn in the same places that they did. It was phenomenal. And then we got some regs changed mm-hmm. and uh, changed the... Uh, rules as to where they could be killed and kept in the fall, man, it didn't take a half a dozen years and the fishery rebounded better wow. than it had been for 50 years.
0: It's Incredible. Well, it
1: just shows you that sometimes um, fish can really surprise you.
0: Absolutely. How old were you when you started doing that with the DNR?
1: I would have been in my late teens probably. Okay. Gotcha. Teens, early twenties, maybe early by then it would have been maybe early, early twenties. I think I was, yeah, probably about your age, 22.
0: That's great. Was that one of the first, you know, maybe conservation um, you know, projects you were involved in?
1: <laughs> yeah, officially. My first unofficial one was when I almost got fired from the fishing club because I wouldn't let old Mr. Stables kill any smallmouth. <laughs> and I, told, I told him, all right, you want to bring fish home to eat? We'll stop, and I'll catch a couple of walleyes. You can bring those home. But yeah, if you're going to kill smallmouth, you got to take them off a of hook yourself. Mm-hmm. You kill one of them, and I guarantee you, you won't catch another one today. Uh-huh. I'm running the boat. Yeah, and he tried to get me fired. The other club members, uh, <laughs> the other club members worked out a deal because he wanted to kill him for lunch, Okay. and then he wanted to bring him home. Also, he lived on Lake Minnetonka. Mm. He was a crotchety old fart that was an attorney. <laughs> and uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, we worked out a deal. On the way up to fish with me, he would stop at this place called Trout Air. Have you ever? And yeah. where it was these pits that got rainbow trout shoveled in them, and they, you know, throw pellets at them? Mm-hmm. And, and so he'd stop on the way up there, and they'd break, take the fly rods out, and he and his old buddy would would catch a couple of these, icky old rainbows, you know, <laughs> that were about, you know, two and a half feet long, and he'd bring them up in a bag, and then I'd have to cook them for him for lunch, and uh, so that was the deal we worked on. So that was my first conservation effort. Yeah. It was uh, I wouldn't let any of the club members kill smallmouth. That's, just,
2: great.
0: Yeah. that's <laughs> awesome. Are you? Uh, that's a great story there. Are you still involved with any conservation issues, or you know, in the past, was there any that were really big parts of your life?
1: Um, yeah, we had a had a program called uh, One Cast Beyond Tomorrow
2: mm-hmm.
1: that we started at the In Fisherman. And um, it started because I got a um, a tape from a guy. Gosh, what was his name? Mark Tennant, I think. Earthwatch was mm-hmm. his was his uh, organization, and it showed drift netting. Uh, I was astonished. Uh, there was at the time there was uh, enough drift drift net deployed in the North Pacific to encircle the globe two and a half times. Oh. And they were targeting steelhead and salmon, uh, but it was, uh, <laughs> they were supposed to be uh, catching squid or something. Mm-hmm. And there would never been a squid on a boat that had, they checked these boats and never had a squid. But they had seals and they had, you know, all this stuff. Right. And I was just aghast. I, he, yeah, and he sent this tape all over and he couldn't get anybody to air it or do anything with it. And I was just shocked. So I took it to Alan Ron Linder, and I said, "Man, we got to do something here." And they said, "Oh no, 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 no! Teaching America to fish is our business." So now we got to do this, you know, because mm-hmm. if there's no fish left, there's no point in uh, teaching anybody how to catch them. And we've got this uh, uh, format where mm-hmm. we've got 90 broadcast stations. We've got we were pulling 40 share uh, audience share 40. We were out pulling Bill Cosby in mm-hmm. Minneapolis. So um, i threatened to quit if uh, we didn't do it. They said, okay, it's, it's on you to do it. Right. So we put together this neat little group of uh, pieces. One was going to be about drift netting. One was about uh, stream improvement. And we hooked up with the uh, Future Fisherman Foundation. And the, uh can't remember who it was. Uh, John Turner was the head of Fish and Wildlife then. And we got hooked up with them. So if somebody had a, a project um they, we would hook them up to funding, mm-hmm. and and then there was another one, Indian rights, Indian wrongs, that had to do with uh, netting of uh, walleyes, various things, and uh, the attempted co management mm. of uh, some of our things. So there was a some different issues, and uh, I had a poly side background. Uh, the the I I was a guide for a fishing club mm-hmm. that consisted of uh, some guys that were, uh, well, um, old Mr. Pillsbury that started the Pillsbury company. Oh, wow. And, uh, a guy named, uh, John Daniels, Tom Daniels, it was Archer Daniels Midland, you know, uh, the uh, head of international operations for general electric guy okay. named, uh, Hoyt steel. Okay. Uh, and another guy named, uh, Kim Whitney, who was a, a brother who was Wheelock Whitney and, uh, who's, uh, uh, roommate in college was james baker who at the time was the uh, uh secretary of the What he have been secretary of state okay right and uh well these guys wanted me to go into politics when mm. i was uh you know a guy <laughs> and uh, and so i had you know i majored in it doesn't matter anyway <laughs> i knew, i knew where to kind of look so I was looking, okay, who's in charge of the oceans? And I kid, it's, it's the Secretary of State. I couldn't believe it. Wow. That's the direct route. Um, and we have all these committees and all this crap. And I found out uh, the way that the whole ICAT and all the tuna people and all this stuff was all rigged up. And, but at Secretary of State, is where you got to go if you're going to really ring the bell. Hmm. And then I remembered that one of these fellows that I had uh, I'd guided since I was a little kid, was the roommate wow. in college of the guy that I need to talk to. So I called <laughs> Kim Whitney. Mm-hmm. Hey, Kim, I need to talk to Jim Baker to have his phone number. <laughs> Larry, what the hell are you up to now? <laughs> and he's a neat guy. You know, yeah. He's so fun. And, he, uh, <laughs> and I told him, and he said, I thought it was a good idea. So I called the number, and I got this guy named Eric Rahman. Mm-hmm. It's like, hello, uh, I said, looking for Jim Baker. Well, he's in the Middle East. Uh, can I talk to his second-in-command? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I promise. Okay. <laughs> I told him what we were up to in this driftnet thing, and then I uh, cut this thing together. It was about five minutes long. It was going to have a lot of impact. And what I had done was took this, this thing that he'd sent me, and I crushed it down, and, uh, and then ran a, a little thing first with these puppets, that um, had been done by ICAST a long time ago. And it was this uh, Mr. Fisherman, do you have any impact? Mm-hmm. And uh, what it was about is uh, fishing, big business, this, that. But uh, at the end of the day, um, we said there's 60 million anglers. It takes at that time 45 million to elect a president. Going to come up with a bunch of issues here where we need everybody to write into a given phone number or call a phone number. And we want to make an impact. There's enough of us mm-hmm. to change things. So the next one we run shows these drift nets encircling the globe two and a half times. Steelhead and the salmon, it's the uh, North Koreans, uh, the Taiwanese, all targeting fish that belong to the countries of origin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We, and it's no different. Then if the uh, Japanese pulled their, or the Taiwanese pulled their boats up onto the shores of Northern California, started Mm. cutting down redwood trees Mm. and hauling them west. Right. All this number. So we put up James Baker's phone number. (laughs) So I show up on Monday at about noon. Jimmy Linder and I had been out filming something in the morning. And the office was a buzz. There's like 60 people in the office, and all these pink slips, you know, mm-hmm. that used to be, you know, put on that little peg, call me back right away, and okay. all these there was a big stack of them. And the government had been calling, and we had shut down <laughs> their office apparently with all these phone calls. Oh, no. So I called this guy, you know, and he answered the phone. He was just yelling at me about where'd you get this number? And he was cursing and yelling. When he ran out of breath, I explained to him, you don't know, don't you remember? I called you about eight months ago and we had this chat about what I was going to do. And I said, if you're going to do something, I'll make you a hero. But if you're not, we're going to, you know, cause some some trouble. Right. And you told me to kind of stick it. And I said, okay, well, and so I did what I was going to do. Now mm-hmm. what are you-, <laughs> you? And, um, it, uh, if you look back at that period of time, you'll see a big decline afterward in the whole drift netting thing, and they started dealing with it.
0: Yeah, it worked. That's really cool. We I just recorded a podcast with some kids from the uh, Pacific Northwest area. They call themselves the Youth Salmon Protectors, but they do something similar to kind of what you just did there and you know, really just calling people out and saying, Hey, you're gonna you gonna make some action on this? You know, we've got this issue here, you gotta take care of it. Uh, that's that's a great story there. Um,
1: well the world is run by those who show up. Mm-hmm. And most of us are busy working. And uh, some issues are almost impossible to find the bullseye, but you know how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we all take responsibility for our own resources close to home, the ones that we're most familiar with—you uh, know—more familiar often than the agencies that are in charge of them. Mm-hmm. That's the other way you can get things done. Uh, I just resigned from another. Uh, outfit that, uh, was involved with, uh, billfish and so on and the oceans just to be able to, you know, focus closer to home.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you, uh, do you have any projects you work on in the local area, you know, conservation things that you're, you're involved with in the Minnesota, Wisconsin area?
1: Um, not at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, there are issues. I kind of keep an eye on on what's what's going on. There's some interesting uh, stuff right now that's going on. Uh, oh, in the fisheries uh, thing uh, locally, that I'll uh, have to do with uh, live bait management. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got uh, 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 incursion of salt into many of our metro lakes. They did some. Uh, research recently that was pretty troubling uh, salt that comes from the highways of
0: course. yeah there's uh that's definitely talked about a lot out here in colorado the uh we don't use any salt because of it <laughs> what um, oh, yeah. yeah no they only use they only use sand and, and gravel which it makes it hellish to drive sometimes but um, <laughs> <Dang>. yeah <laughs> If you don't have snow tires on your sedan or a four-wheel drive vehicle, you're you're not driving to the grocery store after a snowstorm, um, which is an interesting tactic. But, you know, all of the water here flows right to the river. So they, they do a good job of making sure that there's no salt on the roads, which, you know, it's important. So getting back to the uh, fishing side of things, I'd love to ask you some questions about, you know, going about creating a new lure or fly and, you know, just some of the ins and outs of how you think about, fishing and, and your lure and the first one I'd love to hear about it is color um, and it's something that I think about a lot when I'm tying a fly but also fishing uh, and I was just wondering if there's you know some general tips you had for um, you know maybe that apply across the board or you know for a specific species but how you think about color and, and how you try to incorporate it into a bait and if there's colors you avoid or don't like or anything like that
1: well I don't want to I put color way lower on the scale than most people do. Um, the greatest fishing teacher of all time is a guy named Buck Perry. Have you ever heard of him?
0: I have heard of Buck Perry, yeah.
1: Yeah, the spoon-plugging guy. Mm-hmm. And he looked at color as an aid, not a control.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In, in answer to your question, um, if you look at fish as a look at a, as, a, as a pyramid, Mm-hmm. and at the top of the pyramid you have predators and as you go down you have different um level predators and you get to the very bottom and you wind up with the fish that are not predators but if we just took the, the predators um uh you've got and then we're going to break it into fish that eat each other mm-hmm. and fish that eat bugs okay
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um uh, in this, okay, so um, if we're looking at um, either one of these things, we can say, well, what does this guy eat most of the time? Most Anglers say, gee, I'm going to try to imitate the most productive or the most uh, available or the most uh, commonly eaten by this creature, whatever his food source is some environments that food source is changing all the time and you have to be really precise uh small insect type stuff uh, i think people over rank color there uh and not uh, enough of a the idea of how good a drift if you you got you're really good uh at a dead drift and you know how to do that mm-hmm. uh, the color becomes less important uh but anyway uh, oftentimes when there are, there are times when a food source is so, so prevalent that it needs to be imitated very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you get higher on the food chain, there's other things that become, uh, important. Um, one is, uh, understanding, uh, that there's a role of that top predator having to do with natural selection and it will attack and eat something just for the fact it doesn't belong there. Mm. Uh, when catfish, if you looked at a catfish farm, you'd be surprised how many tiny, you know, small catfish are of well, albino when they're first hatched. You don't see very many full sized albino catfish that right. you get first, because they don't look more like a catfish, they look less like a catfish. Mm. Uh, sometimes, uh, some species, a terrestrial creature Uh, is a really powerful trigger because this predator realizes somehow that this thing is not in its environment and it's really 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 vulnerable and uh, so on Uh, so there's different um, triggers and different uh, times now in in many cases i've been on this is a great you know an example let's say a, a, a group of smallmouth that are in a you know, they're in a group, they're competing with one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got a, and we're going to talk about, we're fly fishing here, and we've got a, a fly, a streamer on, that's a, uh, you pick the color. Let's say it's a a, a good one for smallmouth. is always gold, flash, a boo mm-hmm. Just tie a muddler head in the front of it to give a, create some turbulence. So we catch four or five, six smallmouth in, uh, you know, as many casts. And then we make two or three or four casts. We don't catch one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Switch to a chartreuse. Swing it through. Bang. Mm. Why? I don't know. <laughs> that happens often. Poor, or poor bright orange.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, st- or starting with the chartreuse, catching two, three, four, and then switch to brown, gray, or something real, you know, um, on the far end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Was it that, I mean, is it, I know it's not visibility because I've seen it happen. Right. Then there's, there's other times, uh, there's other types of triggers with predators that are interesting having to do with the time of year. And it's got to do with a a territorial spatial type stuff. And uh, those are, often anomalies, but they're really, uh, interesting. Uh, the, the coolest one, I didn't ever film this and someday I, I should, somebody should do this. All right. Um, I was in Alaska and we were going to go, uh, fish the, uh, the, the big pike when the, uh, those, uh, and, uh, we we're way up in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, uh what was it called? Anvik area, mm-hmm. the river doesn't matter and there was a i was with a guy who really had an ego and um got off the airplane he said i'm going to kick your ass i kind of stepped back like what yeah (laughs) 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 it was you know he meant like every other of these tv guys i've been up here Uh, okay good and uh, anyway, we couldn't go anywhere the first day or two because it was uh, rainy and stuff, and he had to fly out of you know, the airplane to get to where the pike were. and He was on a river that had salmon in it, and these salmon had moved up, and they were starting to uh, make their reds. and And he was going to show me how to catch them, and he had these little, you know, small uh, flies, and he'd flip it in, in front of a salmon, and and drifted, and, and the salmon had kind of yawned and like mm-hmm. that. To see, almost took it. You know, I've seen this before right and uh, uh I told him I had a poop which I didn't uh, and uh we went back to his little camp it wasn't far away and I had all my fly tying stuff and I'd been watching these salmon uh the biggest salmon would come over and go bonk you know and it was bonking these uh smaller uh, jack salmon so I went back and I tied a diver about uh 14 inches long mm-hmm. and uh bright orange and i had a slime line remember those
0: oh no i've never heard of that
1: i used to use it for tarpon it was okay line line
0: oh it was okay
1: the current really good and it's a like had a mono coating and okay one back cast you could shoot it 100, 100 feet i mean throw it a
2: mile nice
1: and uh, and uh, i had a had one of them with me and uh i had this 10 weight and a. Uh, I drug it up to the end of the boat, you know. And we go up, and, and he, I'm not showing him what, it, what I, you know, I got mm-hmm. the fly kind of hidden. I say, Get up here. I want you to anchor up here. No, up here a little bit further. Okay, right here. And <laughs> I get up above him a bit, and I take this thing out. and he's looking at me, What? And I, I zing out a whole fly line kind of upstream and then I let the fly line get caught in the current. So it gets a big belly going downhill like that. I put the tip down I started stripping it at about 800 miles an hour. It comes shooting, you know, downhill at an angle at this pod of fish. And as it spins, the biggest one just comes up and <laughs> like a musky. And so I catch it and he's what the, and we go to the next one. And the next one we fished like a uh, seven or eight, uh, uh, reds, mm-hmm. and I caught the, the biggest one on the first cast on all the reds except one. And one of them I couldn't get it to bite, and I still don't know why. Yeah, but it would make and I didn't, didn't film it because I thought, you know, where I come from, if salmon is a real sober and fresh, right? It, it's not, you know, nobody ever fishes for them, but these fish, you know, they're still hot. But it was pretty fun, it would have been a really good video.
0: Yeah, that's great, that's good to know. That's uh, yeah, it shows you how aggressive they can get because you know, they're not even really supposed to be eating at that stage right you know they're just pissed off Mm -hmm.
1: yeah there's there there are fish that just get out of my neighborhood and Mm -hmm. it happens at certain times when they're nesting and not all species are that way
2: Mm -hmm.
1: now all the species however uh prior to their spawning time Mm -hmm. uh eat like crazy and they position in places that are highly um highly predictable if you understand what the environments are Mm -hmm. if you don't understand it they're really hard to find because they're all bunched up close together yeah times that the fishing is best is when uh, they're hardest to find if you don't know what you're looking for
0: yeah exactly one thing i wanted to come back to that you touched on is that um the, I forget who it was you said it, but, you know, when you presented the idea about the, um, the drift nets and the conservation idea to this person, they said, oh, no, we're in the business of teaching America how to fish. Was well, that... that- was Okay.
1: That, that's when we worked at the In Fisherman sure. TV and magazine right okay.
0: Um was that your I understand that position. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I I love that position. I think it's a great thing to do. Was that your goal with the hunt for big fish? You know, to sort of teach people how to fish and teach people how to think about fishing or
1: well, what I wanted to do was make people understand or not make make anybody do anything, but just to Try to clarify the, the process of how you eliminate unproductive water mm-hmm. <laughs> to find this thing that you're looking for. Right. The tools that I would use rather than just sort of, uh, you know, here's another guy windmill and fish, and you got another guy in the boat, you know, with a, you know, hey, you know, purple worm, green mm-hmm. worm, or I uh, wanted to of lay out more the the story and the strategy and the well the tactics strategy mechanics mm-hmm. that's it there is no more to any fishing
0: yep that's good advice tactics strategy mechanics those are your three tips right that was your
1: They're not tips then what they are is that's how you break down what you're doing mm-hmm. Mechanics are your ability to execute what it is you're trying to do Whether The mechanics are things you can control. How I run my boat. Mm -hmm. Can I make my boat do this or that? Can I make my lure go where I want it to? How I want it to? Uh, What are the things that are not tying? Mm -hmm. All all the rigging, uh, all of that stuff is mechanical. Uh, The the, uh, uh, strategic part of it is breaking down what are the options within this environment. Right. Uh, how much room have I got? You were talking about learning a river. The mm-hmm. First thing you have to do, okay, how much of this can I fish? What mm-hmm. I'd like to do is get in a boat first and drift it from whatever time I've got so I can see what is the relative depth of every single pool. I mm-hmm. want to know what is what so I know relative. I need a frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And so you pick out, as far as your strategy, how much time have I got? How fast does my boat go? How big of an area can I cover here? Okay, what area should I pick? Should I drive forty miles before I start looking? Do I have a high? You know, sometimes I don't have a hydro map. You got to start mm-hmm. driving around it and finding it. And so you break. You have a strategy, okay, and then you've got a number of tactics uh, in the strategy. I've got a twenty-foot flat here that that's adjacent to a hundred and twenty-foot hole. There's a couple of notches and a couple of points on it. What's the best way for me to cover this thing? Mm-hmm. So what do I do? Do I take a wire line and a three-way thing with a pound weight on it? And what do I do? Mm -hmm. There's a number of different tactics that I can employ. And so that's how I break it down. And uh, you start shallow, uh, work deep, uh, go real fast. What can I see with my own eyeballs? (laughs) Look around. Yeah. down and then make decisions as to where you're going to allocate your time.
0: Yeah, I like that because it applies to all fisheries. You can, you know, you have the same three things that, you know, happen in a river that you can apply that in a lake, you can apply that in the ocean, you can apply it on the flats, all yeah. of it.
1: It can be a brook trout stream that's mm-hmm. two
0: feet wide. Right, right. Well, one more question for you here, Larry, but uh, what do you, you know, are you, did you just ice fish? You're finishing up that ice fishing season right now and then. <laughs>
1: Yeah, winter fishing is best done near the equator.
0: Ah, gotcha. Yeah.
1: The first video I ever did, uh, I produced a video for In Fisherman called Ice Fishing Secrets, where we introduced electronics uh, to ice fishing. And uh, I made a deal, okay, well, I'll write it, we'll produce it, we'll film it, we'll edit it. Doug Stanley, you're going to be the guy uh, on it, because I don't want to be the, mm-hmm. the ice fishing guy. Uh, I've been through that. I, I, <laughs> I graduated from it a long, you know. I need 2000 holes. if I, when I start, yeah. fishing, it's like turns into Swiss, Swiss cheese and I'm not wired for, I'm just not wired for Right.
0: It. Right. So then what, uh, what fisher are you excited for? You got a spring muskie bite coming around or spring smallmouth? What are you looking forward to in these next couple of months?
1: All, all, all of those things. Okay. I could go right now and catch any of those species so that the, the season isn't open
0: okay good but
1: i'm excited about all of that i'm so excited i can't really stand
2: it <laughs>
0: yeah i feel the same way i just I'm a big skier but this past weekend i got out fishing for the first time in a little while and i'm, I'm ready to ditch the skis and, and get out there and start fishing <laughs> <laughs> So, good. When you
1: say skis, I just think of muskies.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've only caught one muskie in my life, but it was one of the coolest fish I've ever caught. It was on Pewaukee Lake. You know Pewaukee by any chance?
1: Oh, yeah. I used to know a guy there uh, about 45 years ago. I can't remember his name, but he was a speed troller, and he caught the Big, long, skinny muskies in Pewaukee Lake. Yep,
0: yep. That's about what it looked like. I grew up down the street from Pewaukee. That was one of the lakes I cut my teeth on as a kid, so that's nice. Well, thank you so much, Larry. I really appreciate you being here and really appreciate everything you've done for the sport of fishing. Uh, I, Like I said, loved watching your show and everything, so uh, really appreciate what you've done, and, and thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Well, the pleasure was most certainly mine, and uh, I think we need to thank the Costa people yes Uh, for supporting such a such a worthwhile program they they do a lot of kind of behind the scenes stuff that is uh they really really put back and i think that all of us should support them
0: absolutely costa loves this community and they do a lot to support it so thank you for saying that larry
1: you're welcome